0: Hello, and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hadjasad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, thank you for trying something new. I will reiterate, Ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists, and you can find our work all over the internet. In fact, I'll let Ben... Plug a couple of
1: the recent publications that he's written for. Ben, can you do that for me, please? Sure. You can find my work at Car and Driver, at Motor Trend, at Driving Line, and at InsideHook. Hook. And you
0: can find my work at driving.ca, autotrader.ca, Nouveau Magazine, and TechSpot. Ben, we've got a couple of Fords to talk about and a new segment, which I'm always very excited about. So let's just jump right into it. What have you been driving recently?
1: So I drove a vehicle that I think a ton of people are curious about. And I know I was really interested in driving, and that's the 2021 uh, ford bronco sammy and not only did i drive the bronco i drove the ultra bronco that the, the top tier bronco the wild track which is designed according to ford for high speed off-roading
0: you're sure it's the wild track and not the ogopogo or whatever it's in bigfoot meant or... for
1: magog sasquatch well here's the well, thing sammy
0: sasquatch that's the name of the trim level it's yeah, fine well so
1: sasquatch isn't a trim level it is an options package and oh, the okay. wild track makes it standard Mm-hmm. So what you get with the Sasquatch is basically 35 inch tires.
0: That's it. That's,
1: that's, what, that's a Sasquatch. That's pretty much what you get when you get to the wild track. I believe I that, that there's sense. a couple it's of a other Sasquatch. things that come it's, with like if you get it on a lower vehicle, a lower trim level, um, it's you might get a few other bits and pieces. but these are 35 inch uh, mud terrain tires. What's funny funny is that I believe the tires are actually wrangler tires. When they're, they're like made by Goodyear, Jeep, right? from, from I think it is. Jeep Wrangler? No, no, no. Just, it's just like that's their brand name, right? All right. But on the Bronco, they removed the word Wrangler from the sidewall. <laughs>
0: so do you think if you have to get a replacement, you have to wait specifically for this non-Wrangler branded? I guess so. Of, and you know, I think
1: Wrangler? the 33-inch that originally that come on, like, the Badlands, which is the trim below the wild track, I think it's the same kind of deal. I think it's also, like, a Wrangler removal. Uh, so, so, yeah, so the top, the two top versions of the... Of the Bronco are the Badlands and the Wild Track. And the main difference between them is the Badlands is the turbocharged four cylinder, and the Wild Track has the turbo EcoBoost V6. So right. The, the, you also, there's a few other like tiny differences. The Wild Track, because it's designed for kind of a desert running kind of thing, you don't get the rock rails that you get on the Badlands. And I think the interior is nicer in the Wild Track too. It has leather versus, and, and carpet. Whereas the Badlands is like vinyl seats and kind of a rubberized floor that you can just wash out. So it's okay. a, it's semi-luxurious, but it is, for most intensive purposes, a Badlands with a bigger engine and bigger tires.
0: So talk to me all about this Wrangler, because I've driven it very, very Bronco, briefly. About, uh, sorry, this Bronco. Um, I want to hear all everything you feel about this thing. So did you drive the four door, the four-door or the two-door? I had the four-door.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, it's available. And you think it looks gorgeous, right? You're like, this is my thing, a four-door, big old SUV. Yes.
1: I'm not a big fan of the styling. I don't think it looks bad. I think the two-door is the most attractive version of the Bronco. I just think the proportions work better. Mine is a was a four-door with the hard top, which I think is probably the best version of the four-door. The soft top, it's kind of wacky looking from certain angles. I find like the windows at the back... I don't know. It's it's like got that old school convertible feel where like the windows have a wave in them, like a plasticky wave. It's just not super high end looking with the top on. I don't know if you feel the same way. No, I have no
0: feelings about these uh, these hard tops or soft tops. So Wrangler. I mean, a Bronco is. Mike, you retorts. can't you,
1: you, you can't stop saying stop Wrangler. It, I should. Yeah, I'm it. the one who brought up the word Wrangler too. Yeah. So it's and my know fault. Me,
0: once I hear one word, <laughs> I just can't <laughs> stop saying it. Once I hear one Wrangler, I just can't stop saying Wrangler. I um, I feel
1: like I incepted the word Wrangler into your into mind my,
0: into my vocabulary and now I just can't stop saying Wrangler. Right? I think when we start talking about the car that I have, I just will compare it to a Wrangler several times. Word
1: Wrangler Wrangler.
0: Yes. So no. Tell tell me. Um, was what was your like? There's anticipation for this vehicle. I think they're they're like um, on back order essentially for at least a year, and um, the. This- this huge There's anticipation. just so much hype, right? So when you walked up to this thing, could you feel the weight of that hype in the key fob in your hand as you were getting up to it and you were like, I got to test this thoroughly, right? I
1: didn't feel the weight of the hype walking up to it, but I certainly felt the weight of that hype when I realized that I was not really into this SUV. Well,
0: yeah. I mean, knowing you, you're not really into off-roading. You're not really into trucks, really. So wow. I don't know. <laughs> so What the- do you mean? Tell me more. Once you started driving it, what happened? Like, you got accustomed to the interior. You saw the price tag. What was it that changed your – or that made you realize that maybe the hype is is more than this thing can handle?
1: So I have kind of a – what might be an unusual position on the Bronco. I feel like Ford had an opportunity with this vehicle to really build something special. This is a as you said hotly anticipated everyone's curious about it. They can't build enough of them. Uh, I believe they're sold out for 2021 and they've had they've had a bunch of production issues with some of the parts like the tops. But other than that, you know, it's been very popular. Yeah. Most of the reason why you can't get a Bronco is because everyone wants a Bronco. So this is a a chance to capitalize and, and kind of really kick Jeep in the nuts and and Jeep is <laughs> And that's the most uh, that that is the most honorable
0: thing an automaker can do. I honor. realize it's a very
1: gendered expression and I apologize for that. But they they wanted they they had the chance to Jeep has been building the Wrangler for a very long time. It uses a very specific old school formula and it's very competent off-road and not so great on road. It's it's fine, but it, it you know, it has its issues. So I was thinking, all right, Bronco could be super great off-road and it could be pretty damn decent on-road. This is a real chance. Instead, what they did was build an SUV that is really good off-road and acceptable on-road in the sense that it's better than the Wrangler. Yeah, huge
0: benchmark to clear.
1: Possibly the lowest bar they could have set for themselves. (laughs) So I drove the I drove the Bronco around town, obviously. I live in Montreal. It's a it's a pretty packed city. Uh, yeah,
0: but there, the the if I know anything about the road surface in Montreal, you essentially all, it, it is akin to off road. Well, I, places, I I wanted to right? follow it up by
1: saying I took it I did take it well outside the city as well. I went on a okay. long road trip, I did highway with it, I also did some extensive two lane driving in it. Um, I did not get the chance to off road it, and I don't think that's really an issue because everyone knows these are good off road. Yeah. Many of my our friends and colleagues have taken them off road and they've done both. And very- I
0: have taken I have taken it off road and I even said that it made the off road trail seem really boring. Which is just to show how, how confident and high-tech that – and I, I actually was a little bit annoyed by how high-tech all of the off-road gear was, like all, all the off-road features were. I thought that just kind of took the fun out of off-road and kind of automated it. But so, yeah.
1: so I, I approached this as what is it like to really live with this Bronco on a daily basis? And there's, there's things in its favor – that kind of elevated above what you would expect from a big chunky body on frame SUV. It's got an independent front suspension, which the Wrangler doesn't have. And if you're an off-road guy that or, or girl, that's probably going to upset you because, hey, uh, that's the strength and the traction adding elements of a stick axle are something that are in the Wrangler's favor. But on the highway, the Wrangler wanders everywhere, right? Especially mm. when you put big tires on it. And since this has big tires, 35 inches, I was curious to see how much better it would be. On the highway, it's a lot easier to drive in the sense that you're not always correcting the steering, so it's less exhausting compared Mm -hmm. to a Wrangler. That is in its favor. However, handling-wise, it's not really any better. And I say that because it's still very large and bulky. So when you're cornering all of that mass really informs whatever decisions you're making with the steering wheel. Uh, The the advantage of the independent front suspension is, I don't know if, if anyone out there has driven a dual solid axle truck, but when you're on a washboard road, for example, it'll vibrate and move laterally. Like, if you, if you hit a series of bumps, a, a solid axle tends to move the car in to one side or the other. Right. With an independent front suspension, you don't have that issue. So the front end of the Bronco is much more planted than you would expect. The rear end still does bounce and move if you hit that kind of thing. But it is easier to control in those two situations. So those are two advantages it enjoys over the Wrangler. But mm-hmm. in a lot of other ways, on the highway, I didn't see huge differences. Um, first off, it's very loud inside, Sammy.
0: Yeah, the I think road and wind noise or tire and wind noise is really um, they they just penetrate that cab that cabin significantly and much more than the Wrangler, which is again a benchmark a low benchmark for a Ford to have cleared, and I don't think they managed.
1: No, it's it, you're you're totally on the on the nose with the the no the noise from the wind from the tires. I also want to add mechanical noise. You really hear the engine and the driveline itself at higher okay. speeds. Uh, you also hear the top because every every bounce that I went over with the rear end, the rear of the vehicle, like the roof, the fiberglass roof would twist and turn and screech while it was doing that. So there's really? like, there are wow. screeches and rattles. I'm not saying it's like a high pitched constant sound, but it is constantly moving. Okay. So there's that as well, which you don't necessarily hear with other SUVs and even moving beyond the Wrangler. If you if you were to compare this to a similarly sized crossover, this is a totally different world. This does not feel like a modern suv in many ways the one area i think where this vehicle excels is the v6 it is a fantastic engine plenty of power this is a very heavy vehicle and yet you don't really notice that the acceleration is good and um and it has like 40 gears or something yeah it's a 10 speed automatic so if you go to the v6 if you have the wild track the badlands and the four-cylinder you can get the manual transmission the seven speed which is really a six speed with a crawler gear but mm. for the uh, bad, le- sorry, the wild track, it's a ten speed automatic. You can't do anything about it. Um, it's a fi- the transmission is fine, but the, the 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 weird thing about having a great motor but a chassis that isn't so great on the road is that I never wanted to drive it quickly, and it's one of the rare vehicles where I was at or under the speed limit at almost all times.
0: Oof. So, okay. Like,
1: I'm talking like I'm driving fifty five and a sixty. Or mm-hmm. like 30 and a 35, it was just odd. i it, it didn't feel good to drive it quickly. It just got louder, and it was to the point where the, you know the handling isn't superb, so I didn't really want to push it.
0: Um, so you're saying the car didn't feel too confident, and the noise really impacted your sort of enjoyment of of the vehicle at higher speed.:
1: Yeah, it was it was it made me drive in a more relaxed manner. I guess is the best way to put it. Mm,
0: I don't know. Driving 55 in a 60 while everyone is like passing you and honking at you, <laughs> you or, or, you know what I mean? That also can, can cause some sort of um, like, you know, feelings of anxiety. Yeah. It, That's not great. And I was wondering the other, pe- the other parts of the, of the vehicle that make it, um, that make a, I think that make a big difference over the Wrangler might be the interior, which is supposed to be a significant departure
1: from what the Wrangler offers. A little bit more high tech, right? So the interior is the area of the Jeep, aside from the handling that, sorry, the, not the Jeep, the Bronco. Now now you've got me doing it.
0: Hey, you said Jeep, not Wrangler. That's so. true.
1: We do have a diversity of opinions on this <laughs> on this episode. Uh, the interior is what let me down the most. And okay. I want what, what do you mean by that? Yeah. I, so I want to explain that by saying, again, I want to go back to the idea that Ford had the chance to build something really special here. And instead, when you get inside the Bronco, what you're looking at... Comes across as a mishmash of parts bent stuff. Everything that I looked at in the Bronco is—it felt like I'd seen it in other Ford vehicles. Like the shifter reminded me of the F one hundred and fifty. The steering wheel reminded me of a kind of a generic Ford SUV. The gauge cluster screen in front of me had the blockiest, most basic graphics. It was—it was shocking. I, I just—I couldn't understand what what I was looking at. When you look at like, if we go back to Jeep, it says something like a Grand Cherokee or whatever. Mm-hmm. Some of these, you know, the the older design of the Uconnect system in those vehicles still looks better and more modern than the Bronco gauge cluster, which is, I think, problematic. I I did like, it it had Ford Sync 4, which is their latest infotainment system on the the center of the dashboard. Mm -hmm. The graphics there also aren't great, but the system itself is pretty good. So uh, I did enjoy using that. But everything else, all the other Switch gear, it did not feel special. And I don't understand it. I really don't get why... When you get into a Jeep Wrangler, it is the Jeep. Yeah. That is the basis for the whole brand. And it doesn't... And you feel that way,
0: right? Like, it feels like they didn't didn't cut a corner when they're trying to express... That This is the Jeep. Yeah, it feels deliberately
1: uh, styled, it feels deliberately designed, and it feels like other Jeep models in the lineup flow from the Wrangler in a lot of ways, good or bad. Uh, The Bronco obviously came in later to the game, so it's harder to create that kind of sense of ancestry. But for a brand that really pushed Heritage there's nothing about the Bronco experience that feels unique. It really just feels like a more capable Ford SUV in in, in an off-road sense. And then on the road, it feels very clunky. And so I was left asking, like, is Ford just pasting over this with Heritage? Is, Is it using that to kind of obfuscate the fact that they've built a very competent truck that just... That's all it is. It's just very competent. Here's the retro styling. Here's the history. And that's the package they're selling you. That, to me, is disappointing. I think
0: um, getting to market is another thing, too. I think they they really wanted to get it to to market as soon as possible. I think we're not seeing um, as much attention to detail as this vehicle should have had, Um, especially when you're going after a, a brand or a nameplate as significant as the Wrangler. Um, usually you want to put your best foot forward and I'm not sure that they did that with every aspect of the vehicle.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. It does kind of feel like it was rushed in some ways. You know, we've been beating up on it, comparing it to the Wrangler a lot. And obviously it's going to be compared to the Wrangler because that's the only reason this exists. I mean, well, I mean, what else do you want to, you want to compare yeah. it to like, uh, I don't a, a know, forerunner like, is probably the closest the 2000 thing. Xterra or something? A, like, a, a forerunner is the <laughs> closest thing, but a forerunner isn't a heritage vehicle. In the same way that this is in the Wrangler, so it get, kind of gets left out of the conversation. But I do want to say where Ford's pulls ahead of the Wrangler. It's not in the wild track. It's it's in the base models because yeah. the entry level version of the Bronco has way more equipment than a base. You you can get a version of the Wrangler with no air conditioning, <laughs> okay. so it's it's not standard. So get like over
0: the roof, that's that, Take off the roof, That's air conditioning. Yeah,
1: but I mean, it's got manual door locks and that kind of thing on on the two doors, and it has the really old uh, five inch infotainment system. So if you're buying a more affordable Bronco, you'll get more gear than you would versus the versus the Wrangler, and it has additional safety features you probably won't find in the Wrangler as well. So it, the, the that's great for them from a value perspective. But once you get to the top trim, like. You know, Ford has two engines for the Bronco. There's that that four cylinder, it's about three hundred and fifteen horsepower, I think, on premium fuel. Mm-hmm. Um am, am I, right? Am I right about that?
0: I I'm assuming so. You're usually pretty spot on with your numbers.
1: Yeah, so it's it's similar in horsepower to the V6, but the the, the V6 has a lot more torque. Um in any case, Jeep has a ton of engines for the For the Wrangler, you can get a V6. Too many now, yeah. You get a turbo four. You can get a hybrid. You can get a turbo diesel. You can get a 6.4 liter V8 that's nearly 500 horsepower. I mean, that's a lot. And and yeah, the Wrangler's been around longer. So obviously it has all these drivetrains available to it.
0: But I feel like Jeep saw this Ford coming and said, well, we need to do something to keep our name in the headlines and to ensure that our clients don't or our customers don't don't abandon ship for this new Bronco. We can have a plug in engine, we can have a diesel, we can have a V eight. Sure. I um, mean and,
1: and it's it's cheap for them to do that too. I mean yeah. I'm not saying it doesn't cost anything, but if you have I these drivers,
0: honestly, it's not a bad like it's not even that like the motors are the problem are a problem in the Jeep, but just having that constant reminder to customers that the Jeep is here, it has a new thing, check it out, right? Yeah, and it- and that will help them save off something like the rank, like the Bronco.
1: So I think that to kind of sum it all up, I did not enjoy driving it and I was not sad to be done with it and I won't miss it. And I think that's a huge missed opportunity for Ford. I am someone who owns a very old school SUV and the driving experience between them was a chasm. Um, (laughs) My old truck is comfortable and smooth in ways that the new Bronco isn't and yeah it's not nearly as capable off road I'm sure in a lot of scenarios but if they were trying to go for like that old school feel they missed out on portions of it and I don't know what
0: if- they should go for the old school I think we should ignore old school feel okay. I think the- it should be um like you remember the Defender I thought the Defender wasn't that old school feel feeling right yeah. as an as a I don't know you if you want to call it kind of like a throwback Right, but yeah, so so by high. that
1: by that standard though, Sammy, if we were to adopt your your perspective, which I I I happen to agree with, if we were to kind of compare this to what a modern SUV should feel like, this is a failure. Okay, because it does not feel like a modern SUV. It 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 looks ins. It it does kind of a, a modern SUV cosplay. Where, again, we talked about how being a little mm-hmm. bit better than the Wrangler is a low bar. So that's what they've achieved. And when you consider how much potential there is to build vehicles these days and, and how great their capacities and, and, and competencies can be, I, I don't think the Bronco reaches to where I would have wanted it to go. And I know this is a minority opinion, and I know a lot of people really love this vehicle. And my opinion's not going to change that. People are going to buy it, and it doesn't matter. But,
0: well, I mean, I, I think pricing is another area where the where the Bronco might. I, I I have seen some pricing seems competitive, but others don't. How much did yours? How much was yours? Do you know, or how much is a Wildtrak?
1: So a Wildtrak, uh, the the Badlands is forty four thousand, and then I believe yeah. the Wildtrak is forty nine thousand for the. four-door. And again, the
0: difference is a four cylinder to a six cylinder, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. The, primarily, and the automatic transmission and the bigger tires, because you get the standard Sasquatch package. Okay. But there's, like, a 40, ton... 44 no, for a well-equipped model sounds okay. Yeah, and there's there's six versions of the Bronco. There's 11 Wrangler trims. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and when yeah. I say this, I'm not... That, but, like, some
0: Wrangler trims aren't, like, they're not legit. Like, they're just weird special editions that sure, showed up in the maybe. past three months, and then will disappear in two, in two weeks, right? But, like. <laughs> but I'm not...
1: This is like not even including two door and four door, right? Like this is just like trim levels. So you you can double it basically, but uh, yeah, the the, the 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 most expensive Jeep is like seventy five <laughs> thousand dollars. because it has a V eight. Like, yeah, it's, it's the Rubicon with the V eight. So the yeah. the the Badlands and the Rubicon are almost exactly the same price, like forty three to forty four. So that's kind of how Ford is that's has not stacked
0: up great. There. They should have. They could have undercut it maybe more. Maybe I don't know. But I again, feel... I, I just yeah.
1: sorry to interrupt, but. The basic Bronco is more capable off-road, I think, than the basic Wrangler, if you're looking at um, the gear that comes with it. There's, there's another aspect of the vehicle. The Bronco comes with, it's, it's more of an electronically curated off-road experience mm-hmm. versus the kind of analog old-school one that the that the Wrangler offers. So there's that, too. It's kind of like off-road for beginners, and I don't mean That's that dismissively. That's thing, how I but described it. Yeah.
0: Um, okay, cool. I'm, I don't know, like... There's a lot of attention around the Wrangler, and it doesn't seem like they. The Bronco. Sorry. Jeez.
1: <laughs> Holy I'm enjoying cow, it Sammy. at this point. I'm into it. I'm yeah, into the. Is, is
0: there a tally? I think one of our listeners will send me a tally. We need Rambo to have a, an
1: intern who rings a bell <laughs> every time you say <laughs> Wrangler.
0: I have like a Wrangler jar, right? Every time. Um, is this going to. First of all, was the was the Jeep vulnerable to um disruption by Ford did this not meet that expectation and will there be more automakers gunning for the Wrangler after seeing how Ford um approached it and you know other people could think you know there there's this is an opportunity for them too
1: i think that Ford had a unique opportunity because they were able to leverage the heritage of the Bronco i mm-hmm. don't think other automakers have that ability I think Toyota tried it with the FJ and that failed. So I don't see that as being viable for them. Failed and we, miserably. And yeah. we, we all know what happened with Chevrolet and the Blazer. So this is, I think, a door that opens once. And what I don't, do you
0: mean by we know what happened with... They made the mistake of, of attaching the name to a car that yeah. did
1: not... But that's, like, that's what I'm saying. So they, that opportunity is passed. They can't do anything about it now. You know what but I you're
0: mean. making it seem like the the off road vehicle was only based on heritage. If they if they make a a, a an SUV that can that's capable off road, it doesn't need to be called a Blazer. It doesn't need to be called anything. No,
1: be, because I everyone who's tried to do that has failed. Yeah, no one has ever been able to unseat the Wrangler. So I'm saying that Ford had their had the best opportunity because of the position of the Bronco in in its history.
0: And they still have. They still have uh, moves to make, I think. If if this thing didn't look
1: like an old Bronco from the 70s, from the late 60s, early 70s, it would not be selling. I think that's virtually guaranteed. You're telling me it's just styling. I'm saying that styling and heritage are a huge part of the image for this vehicle. Yeah, I think that's that's its chance to do something in a segment dominated by another heritage heavy vehicle, which is the Wrangler. And I don't right. think any other automaker can match that right now because of choices they made or past experiences. Like, if, I they, think, if, if Nissan... I mean, N- Nissan had the Xterra, right?
0: Yeah, and what was the other one they have globally? Patrol?
1: Yeah, so, like, yeah. these are vehicles that, you know, they don't mean Which anything. Is an Armada, really, yeah. They don't mean anything here. So, no. what are you going to do?
0: Um, and Defender. I think Defender... I actually really... I think we had a really good conversation about the Defender. We had the two-door. Um, pretty okay vehicle. A tiny bit expensive, but very... Much a modern SUV in that yes. sense of, of cabin and and driving experience. But also, right?
1: having talked to friends and colleagues who've taken all three of them off-road together, the Wrangler, the Bronco, and the Defender, the Defender is a distant third. Wow! And some of that well, is tire that comes with it, but yeah, okay. there's other aspects of its design that are not at the same level of off-roading capability as compared to the others. Okay,
0: I can see that. Um, I, as I will add, I also think that the technology and the capability of that of that Bronco is pretty good based on my experience um, on a short uh, a pr- but pretty hardcore off-road loop. Um, but it just made the off-roading experience a
1: little boring. Um, anything else you want to add about the Ford Bronco? No, I mean, if you're looking for refinement, you're going to have to look somewhere else. If you're looking for something that feels modern, you're going to have to look somewhere else. If you're looking for a Wrangler, you might want a Wrangler. But if you really like how the Bronco looks, this is the only place you're going to find it. So it's other, It has a great engine and a look that appeals to a lot of people, but the experience itself is a letdown. I wonder if I would feel the same about the four-cylinder in, in a short wheelbase version. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to drive it because I, I don't want to just, you know, crap all over the Bronco again. I don't, that's not really helpful to people. (laughs) And if I, if it's, if I've determined that the experience is not something I enjoy, I don't want to repeat that experience. (laughs) Anyway, let's move Um, on. Let's move on. No, no, wait,
0: hold on. One, one very (laughs) quick question. Do you have a spec of Wrangler that you yourself would take? Like, what is the one that you look at and you're like, that's the one for me now?
1: Uh, I like the Turbo 4 two-door Rubicon. Okay. And But here's the thing. Uh, so uh, a friend of the show, Brad Iger, he and I have a an opinion that there should be a poser spec Wrangler yeah. where you get the look of the Rubicon, but you don't have to deal with like the crazy tire tread that it pulls you all over the road. And some of the gearing and whatnot, because um, I, I probably don't want to do hardcore off-roading with it. So I would really like a Rubicon looking two door with the with the two liter turbo, which I think is a fantastic engine. I don't even care that it's automatic only; that is isn't great eight speed. And I have a lot of fond memories of driving that late at night in LA during weather winter weather that, as a Canadian, I found amazing. I had the top down, beautiful. Uh, so it's kind of it's kind of a. What's the I word? I think they actually do have this spec. I think it's called a Willys Sport or something like that. Oh, then, then I'm. Well, Jeep does make a lot of poser spec Jeeps. I mean, you can get a Grand Cherokee that looks just like the SRT, but it's called, yeah, yeah. It's called like the X or something. Limited X. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you would that. say the Turbo Four, right? Is that what you I said? really like the Turbo Four? The other engines are fine. The V6 is fine, but the Turbo Four is a lot punchier a lot better. i want the four by e
0: the one that whenever i when i press the weird button to change it to um electric mode or gas mode it does whatever it wants to yeah i love that you're along I love the, the ride <laughs> yes i want the
1: car to make the to change its mind for me yeah the other cool thing about the four bay e is it weighs 800 pounds more than any other jeep <laughs> in the lineup
0: i want to crawl over a leaf to get to my parking to get to my charging spot there you That's go what I want. um I also have a Ford to talk about. Another one that I don't think we have um, spent a lot of time discussing. It's the Ford Escape, but the plug-in hybrid model. Oh, I've, and, never,
1: I've never driven this.
0: Yeah, it's pretty fresh, I think. Um, and it, unlike most escapes, it doesn't use a turbocharged engine. Instead, it uses a 2.5-liter two, a 2. four-cylinder engine. It offers um, 37 miles of range, which is four less than the... Uh, Tucson hybrid plug in hybrid and five sorry five four oh, four more than the Tucson and five less than the rav four prime, which I think is the benchmark right now in the segment and and in the real world, what did you see um I saw about that i I think um what is uh sixty kilometers into miles it's about forty miles yeah, so that's what I ended up getting uh, thirty seven miles so that's actually right on right on target, which is pretty impressive for most EVs, especially at the temperatures that we're driving right now. Um, I liked the Escape for the most part. I think the Escape is a very competent vehicle. It reminds me, though, too much of the of the Focus that we don't have, which bugs me a lot. Um, I think it's a fairly conservative-looking vehicle inside and out. It has a decent amount of tech. It's easy to get it used to. But um, I have a couple of issues overall. First of all, this Ford Escape is a little too loud. A little too loud for my liking. Um, I don't know if it's the CVT or just the uh, sound deadening within the cabin is just not there. But every time um, the the gas motor turned on, I could definitely hear it. Every time I'm yeah. gunning it on the highway,
1: I could for sure hear it. Um, I, have, I now- have a theory that I want to run by you about that. Sure. So I also have noticed that. So when I had the Prius Prime, when the engine came on, it was very noticeable and. Oh. I think that it might be because when you get used to driving around on the battery yeah, you get used to how yeah you yes. get used to how the vehicle like in your you, you make this imprint in your mind of this is how this vehicle sounds, and so when the engine comes on it's unexpected and it breaks through, and it really kind of shatters the mindscape you've built for driving and i I think this happens to me too. Where I, I get down on the sound of the I'm like oh this engine sounds unrefined but does it really or does it just sound unrefined compared to absolute silence? <laughs> yeah,
0: and and you do hear a lot and again I'm on winter tires you do hear a lot of winter uh, a lot of tire noise. Um, so that that is the one thing that really stood out to me the power the power of this powertrain is not really um, it didn't really stand out the 2.5 liter makes about 165 horsepower with the electric motors it comes to about 220. Um, combined horsepower, which is a significant chunk less than the RAV4 Prime, which uses the same size engine, a um, 2.5-liter four-cylinder. Additionally, one small thing, which I think is actually a bigger deal than it is, the Ford Escape Hybrid, plug-in hybrid,
1: only comes in front-wheel drive. Only. And that's a big difference from the RAV4 as well.
0: Yeah, which is all-wheel drive. What about the the Tucson? Tucson. And The the Tucson is all-wheel drive as well. So now we're looking at this... um, Ford Escape Hybrid with less range than the Rav4, a little bit more than the Tucson. It starts at you can get a base a basic model, an SE version for thirty three thousand, which is one thousand less than the base plug-in Tucson, but four thousand less than the Rav4. And I think the Rav4 also has like three hundred horsepower or something like that. It's a very quick feeling um, plug-in hybrid. So. You get this kind of lethargic powertrain, you don't have all-wheel drive, um, it's a tiny bit loud, and it, you know, it has that kind of interior of a mid-range Ford, like it just didn't feel too special. Especially it has, like, this fake, this, sorry, real plastic, fake-looking wood, um, like veneered, like really plasticky-looking trim on the ca- in the cabin, which is awful, really, really un... un- characteristic of, of what a vehicle that costs nearly 40 grand I had the titanium model cost so, nearly 40 grand
1: so where does this fit in I mean I'm having trouble understanding where Ford is positioning this vehicle if it's not all wheel drive it's still fairly expensive and the range is you know competitive but you know the power is not so what yeah. what is the story with the escape plug-in
0: no, man. I, I'm really caught off guard by this vehicle. I think it's a it might be a compliance thing. It might be trying to find the people who couldn't get their hands on a RAV 4 um, and don't feel comfortable enough with the Tucson, uh which has very aggressive styling. If you've seen a Tucson, I don't think you can forget what you've seen. Well, I mean we had um,
1: we were talking about the Santa Cruz last week, which is very similar.
0: Yeah. Um and additionally, it's not as big as I know we talk about this car with a bit of a smirk. But it's not as big as an Outlander PHEV. So I don't really know where this poor Escape plug-in hybrid fits in. And I don't think whatever it's supposed to be doing is effective enough. Because I think the 2-liter turbo um, version of the Escape, very good. Um, and even the 1.5-liter version of it, if I'm if I'm getting my, my motors right, is also very good. Um, this is just not the one, man. Like, this is... It's not good. I don't know how else to say it. It's not price it's not cost effective it's um pretty good at meeting its range which is that's a, that's a positive but so are the other plug-in hybrids um and the the interior and the exterior are just not stylish enough for me to really recommend it at 35 33 to thirty eight thousand dollars.
1: are there any plug-in hybrids out there that you would buy that you would um not buy in favor of the escape does the escape better than any of the plug-in hybrids in this class that you've experienced
0: yeah, for sure. I mean, it's better than the the Outlander, which is now an, like the current Outlander that they're selling is outdated. Like, it's the last generation version. Um, it's way better than that, and that's it. That's not a, that again. We've mentioned this with the Wrangler. There are low bars to clear. The Outlander <laughs> PHEV is the lowest of bars to clear. So you're saying
1: Ford has the least competitive PHEV compact SUV. Like, yeah, um, of the modern guess, designs, of the modern I mean, I designs. I guess
0: though, so, Because when I drove the Tucson Hybrid, it did feel, tr- it did feel, despite it having um, a 1.6 turbo um, engine, it felt really punchy. It felt really responsive. I liked it. And the transmission is not the same kind of, like, CVT-ish thing that you've got going on in the, um, in the uh, Ford Escape. So it's it felt a little bit more responsive. Um, and then the interior and exterior design really stands out. It feels super modern and, um, and stylish. So I like that a lot. And, of course, we've talked about the RAV4 Prime. I think our listeners know now that um, it's not easy to get your hands on a RAV4 Prime, so we shouldn't really put that on as, on as high of a pedestal as we have in the past. But if you could get one, that would be the one. <laughs> like, it, it, There's no reason, you know what I mean? Like, There's no reason to ignore it. I think that's the that's the it's sitting at the top of the segment. The new Outlander Hybrid, I'm I have high hopes for. I do like the the platform. I do like the the vehicle overall, but I think this new powertrain will will help it. But I don't know. This Ford Escape is really not it's not doing it, um, especially because front wheel drive um, and just kind of nothing special compared to the rest of the of the pro- product lineup that
1: it sits in. So uh, any final thoughts on this vehicle? Is there anything else that is, like, can you think of a reason to buy it? It, it, it? Or is it just, you know, if you can get a good deal on it? Yeah,
0: that's exactly it. If you can get a good deal on it. And I know a lot of people stick with um, a dealership or a, or a brand because they've had good experiences with it or they know their, their salesperson really well or the service department really well. I think that's the main reason you would stick to a Ford Escape hybrid um, because the rest of the, the Ford lineup, the, the rest of the Ford Escape lineup, is better is much more competitive in its segment Um, so so there's no reason
1: there's no reason to run from it but there's no reason to seek one out
0: exactly that's 100 percent it okay um so let's get going we have a new segment this week i think we our listeners have been uh have been responding positively to our segment last week which is about driving tips this week we're not going to be talking about driving tips but we want to provide a little bit of a um of our feelings on some of the forbidden fruit uh, or or vehicles that we just never got here in North America.
1: And particularly, we're going to talk about a whole class of vehicles. Isn't that right, Ben? Yeah, so there are other markets in the world, obviously. And those markets...
0: Obviously. Yeah,
1: they have specific... they. Not needs, but necessarily characteristics or customers are are into different things. And so you end up with uh, cars that just for whatever reason are very, very unique to a certain part of the world. And this week we're talking about K-cars, which have been a part of Japanese car culture since just after the Second World War.
0: Now, K-cars are these tiny little things that I think a lot of people associate with like a sort of city-sized car. But that really isn't the case. Ben, why don't you give us the whole... The whole scoop here. Why don't,
1: why don't you tell me? How,
0: yeah, so you're good at you're good at summing this up without saying Wrangler a bunch of times.
1: Right? <laughs> well, so city cars are, are nothing new. I mean, Europe has a lot of city cars, right? And and they're designed. Yeah. They're, they're small cars that are designed to be easy to use in an urban area. Uh, but the the deal with the K car is it's spelled K E I is in in English is different because what happened after the Second World War is they had a population. In a country that was rapidly industrializing, but there wasn't a lot of money to go around. People weren't that wealthy. And as the country rebuilt, they they realized that while it was hard for someone to afford a, a, a standard car or a truck, it was pretty easy to buy a motorcycle. Mm. So a bunch of car companies decided, hey... We're going to build some motorcycle-sized cars that have similar small displacement power plants, and we're going to market these as an affordable way to get the country on its feet. So you have this original era of K-cars that lasted until 1975 that had 360cc engines, um, a very small footprint, and they became ultra-popular, like, uh, they outlasted... I mean, this is... I, if anyone who played Gran Turismo in the early franchise, yeah. there was the, the Subaru 360, right, Sammy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a wild car. Like, it was... I think it was mid-engine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. And and it's it's tiny. It's like a two-passenger, and they made a... I think they made a truck version of it. Anyway, so it was called the 360 because it was one of these K cars, at 360cc. Um, and uh, once the the segment kind of took off instead of just having these like i guess you could say poverty spec um, low feature cars they ended up building a whole range of k cars like sporty stuff vans pickups and pretty much meeting every part of the market all of them sharing in common this tiny engine and tiny size right so what is it about these things because they've been around for a long time we we don't
0: talk about cars that we just don't have any interest in. There's something interesting about these K-cars. Is it their styling? Is it the fact that we just can't get them? I think they could still work in a lot of different marks. I For sure, I think they would work in, in some European markets. Um, so I don't know why we're not seeing those as popular there. Um, and are there any models that you think, you know, you just, you think about them and you love them? Like, well, what
1: is I, it? I think the reason that K-cars are so cool is because they're regular cars that are shrunken down. It, yeah, because you've got, like, vans. You've got
0: pickups. You've got, like, little pickups. You've got, like, an SUV. We've talked about the Suzuki Jimny in past, in past episodes. I love this Jimny. This is my favorite. And, thing. and there's,
1: there's crazy stuff, like, AutoZam made the AZ-1, which had, <laughs> yeah. the, had the wild gullwing doors. And uh, Honda made the Beat, which was like a mini Miata front wheel. I think front wheel drive. I think I can't remember. Anyway, they're, they're this tiny convertible um, roadster. Um, it's it's all the goodness of a normal car, but with like in the modern era, I think they went up to like 60, 63 horsepower. That was like the limit. And and Japan is one of those countries where a gentleman's agreement, quote unquote, exists between car companies during certain periods of time. Like for a long time in the nineties uh our car company wouldn't report horsepower above 270 or 276 i think was the limit even though the engines made more than that so what happened with the k cars is they they already had a it was up to 660 cc's in the 90s until about 2014 so it's like a 24-year a period um but they also imposed the power limit of 63 horsepower so no one would be building like a super crazy death machine, tiny little K car. But you ended up with a bunch of people being creative, building these really neat cars that looked like bigger cars, um, but took advantage of their small size. So the other reason why these cars stayed popular, Sammy, is because... The, the legislation that existed after World War II to try to jumpstart the economy, it kept going. So like if you bought a K car, it cost less to register. Taxes on it were lower. You weren't required to um, verify that there was parking in the neighborhood where you lived because that's kind of a thing that Japanese, some Japanese cities have to do to make sure you can't just like buy 10 cars and not have parking for it. Um, and really what happened with these cars is they fueled growth outside of the cities as well. Uh, Akio Toyota... The, the chairman of Toyota, has said himself that the the K-Car is—rural life in Japan can't really live without it. It is it is right. the lifeblood of that, of those regions. And in fact, 85% of the roads in Japan, outside of the cities, are only wide enough for two K-Cars to pass each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, they fit their market significantly well. And
0: not only that, but new cars— uh, you, have you ever, if, you, if any of our listeners have seen a new car of any class compared to a new car from, uh, uh, compared to a twenty-year-old car, they've gotten huge. I think I mentioned this before. The Civic is about the same size as an Accord used to be just a generation ago. I think. Yeah. So, the like, cars get big.
1: These K cars didn't really, right? Like no, they, they managed really to fit this footprint. They really stayed small because, like I said, the roads are not so big. And you can't really change that in a very, very old country. This is very difficult to do. Uh, there is a problem, though, Sammy. K-cars are kind of on their way out in Japan because the country is trying to shift away from gas, which means they're seeing electrification like a lot of other areas. But the problem is there's only a small comp- number of companies that actually make these cars. I think Honda, Nissan, Suzuki, maybe a couple of others. And then there's others that rebrand them. But okay. yeah. those companies say that it's going to cost like between... The equivalent of ten to twenty thousand dollars per car to hmm. put battery packs in them to put um, to either make them EV or hybrid. It's just ten to twenty thousand more. Or, yes.
0: Yeah. So that yes. makes that really dumps the sort of value that these cars used to have. Like yeah, It really so, just throws them out over a cliff. That that whole pro- aspect.
1: And because, and starting in 2015, they actually reduced the tax benefits of owning a K-Car. So it's kind of, there's these two forces that are working against what is a really unique slice of the automotive market. And they're going to, I, it's sad to say, but they'll probably be phased out. I mean, until we get affordable, tiny battery cars, it's, it's really hard to see these cars having much of a future as important as they are to rural parts of Japan.
0: Interesting. I'm looking at one of these vehicles. It's not, like, I need to be clear here. These things are are really popular. They um, are extremely I'm looking, popular. I'm looking at this thing. It's called the Honda N-Box, which was a, extre- like, super popular car. Let me try to get the numbers right. Best-selling car in Japan for 28, 28 consecutive months has been sold 1.7 million times since its introduction, um, which is a lot. Okay? And,
1: and, yeah, it it's the k cart market is is huge a lot of people don't realize when Suzuki withdrew from the north American market I want to say. 2010 or around there. Yeah. Um, It wasn't because Suzuki was in financial trouble. What had happened is they wanted to concentrate on building K cars and Japanese market vehicles where they were, they're a major brand. They were, they were doing big, big business. So it didn't make sense to spend all this money to be like 17th overall in America when they could just focus on being a huge player in a very different market. So there are brands in Japan that have been in the K world forever and we just don't. It flies under the radar here. we not. We don't really know. I also have to add. Just
0: because they're small does not make them um, impractical. This N box that is so popular has seats that can slide, recline, um, and all the usual stuff. It also can be used as kind of like a bed. Like the rear, seat, the front seat folds back. You remove the headrest, and you can just lie in the back there. Like that's how spacious the cabin is.
1: Oh, for sure, sure. and and. <laughs> you know um the the other the other interesting thing interesting thing about these cars um is that you can import them now and in america the 25 year rule right you can import a japanese vehicle after 20 and any foreign market vehicle after 25 years. In Canada, it's 15. So these cars have been around a little bit longer here, but they're starting to become more popular and they're actually doing okay on American and Canadian roads. It's not really that much of an issue to drive them. They are super tiny. I mean, you could park a beat beside a Miata and it will look visibly smaller, which is a, a hilarious image. But they, some of the vehicles, they're a little harder to drive here than others. Like Nissan makes one called the S-Cargo, I think. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's a K car or if there's a version of it that's a K car, but some of the vans and whatnot. So in addition to power restrictions and engine size restrictions, they had like a speed restriction and okay. they would have these alarms inside the car that if you went above like 85 kilometers an hour, which is like 53, 54 miles an hour, they would sound off and they don't stop. They just keep <laughs> going. It's like a constant chime. So some people who ended up buying these cars and bringing them to the United States, they didn't know that until they drove it. And then you end up having to parse these Japanese language forums trying to figure out how to pull the fuse to get this thing to stop. <laughs> um, do you have any favorites in this segment? Because I've always mentioned
0: the 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 Jimny, and I think there's a Honda, an S something or other, s 20
1: I, I like the, as I mentioned, the AutoZam AZ-1. It is a wild car. Uh, it was part of Mazda had a bunch of Japan-specific brands in the early 90s where they were trying to kind of become a much bigger company than they are now and part of that autos autozam was one of those brands and Mm -hmm. uh it ended up building some wild performance cars and that's one of them i really like the honda beat is cool i like the um suzuki has something i think it's called the alto which is a pretty neat little hatchback yeah um there is also the suzuki wagon r which is pretty neat that's another. Okay. So you just f- like all. You like all of them. That's no, I don't like all of right. them. But you know, like there's some hot hatches. Uh, I remember the Wagon R from Gran Turismo again, where I was first introduced to the concept of the K cars because they were always the super cheap cars you could buy at the beginning of the game when you didn't have any money.
0: Yeah. Again, once again, the whole concept of our segment. Comes down to. um, Was it available in
1: Gran Turismo?
0: (laughs) Could we learn this function in Gran Turismo? Which I think last week's episode about uh, friction, circular traction, uh, definitely you could talk about that in Gran Turismo. So go out there, grab your Gran Turismo, play some, get in some cake cards and have some fun. Um, Ben, I want to just quickly talk about um, an email that landed in our inbox um, this week from a listener. His name is Sam. He's um, turning 17 and he's looking for a used car. And he wants something like a sedan or a hatchback from 2016 to 2018 that is small and fun to drive, but still practical for the future. What do you think?
1: That's a tough one I, because I've there, got there a couple. So good...
0: – I've got a couple in mind,
1: yeah. I mean there are so many good choices.
0: Yes, but also there are some bad choices. <laughs> so we have to steer them away. We have to steer Sam away from those. Um, I think off the top of my head, one of the most enjoyable small cars – um, of the last generation is probably the Mazda 3, the Mazda 3 hatchback, which I think can be had with a manual transmission. I did like the feel of that vehicle even more than I think the current one, which has gone a little bit more upscale, has gotten a bit heavier, and just doesn't feel as responsive, I think, as the current one. Um, And I think that's a lot of fun to drive. What 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 are? What did you have in mind?
1: I think that uh, a good balance from that era would be something like the, the Elantra Touring, which is a, okay. a decent hatchback that's reasonably fun to drive. The
0: or the Elantra GT too, right? Elantra GT,
1: yeah, is that, yes. Is that, I can't remember whether it's called Touring or GT for that year, but the hatchback version of the Elantra is what I'm talking okay. about. Yeah, um, the very I also, good.
0: I think you can hit that with like a turbocharged engine, um, and it can be it can be pretty fun to drive too.
1: I also like. I mean, the Honda Civic from that era is not bad and uh, kind of a dark horse. The Chevrolet Cruze is very affordable. It is reasonably fun to drive. Uh it's it's not super fast, but it does feel pretty solid. It doesn't have a it's it's one of those uh, under the radar compact car choices that very few people recommend, but I've never had a problem with that car, so I'm comfortable kind of endorsing it. I'm not
0: so comfortable with that. They weren't very popular, and I think for a reason. Um whether it was interior or exterior styling that kept them out of the hands of people's buyers. I, I think uh, it buyers. looks good. I think it looks good. Yeah? yeah. Okay. Well, Sam, I hope that helped. Um, let us know if you need... It, it, really, it usually helps to have a budget um, when picking a, a, a car, but... And all uh, of those are
1: reasonably affordable choices. Um, yeah. What we would if st- you want something maybe cheaper, I would say like a Honda Fit. Yeah, a Honda Fit, honestly, that's an interesting choice because I can Is that the generation that's still fun to drive? That's the question. <laughs> i think because fell. the modern one isn't so good but for a long time the fit was a lot of fun because it was small lightweight and you could get a manual transmission so i'm gonna change my answer <laughs> i'm gonna change
0: <laughs> to, to the good honda fit. from
1: the cruise to the to the fit i think the fit is an interesting choice that didn't come to mind because i was still thinking compact instead of subcompact and, and right. even though the fit is subcompact it is huge inside it is it's ridiculously huge, yeah. huge inside
0: you can move in there, I think. I think people can move houses with a with a Honda fit and
1: I want to put this out there. Samuel, I know this is not necessarily what you want to do with your car, but I in the last week, I have seen a full turbo track stripped interior track version of the fit from that era and a supercharged <laughs> version of the fit from that era. There are people out there doing cool stuff with these cars. they look great and they're very sleeperish. No one's really going to notice. so I, I think it's a fun a fun platform. I have a colleague,
0: Stephen Elmer, from the Truck King YouTube channel, who has a Honda Fit with a towing, uh, a tow hitch attached to it. Um, Basically, the vehicle in Europe, I think sometimes it's called the Jazz, is rated to tow there. And for whatever reason, it's not rated to tow here, even though the mechanicals are identical. So uh, he went and he got himself one of those hitches, and he says it works fine.
1: You know where else it's called the Jazz, Sammy? In Gran Turismo. In Grand (laughs) Turismo. Sammy, very I have good. there. There's something. One. There's two. Two final things I wanted to talk about.
0: Oh, whoops. Okay, sorry for taking control of the. Steer, I steered the ship away from you. I'm sorry.
1: That's okay. I mean, steering the ship away from me and towards the rocks is what keeps this show exciting. Um, I want to talk about a book very briefly that I I, re, I read uh recently. It is a BMW book. It's called BMW M: Fifty Years of the Ultimate Driving Machines. It's by Tony Lewin, mm-hmm. and it is published by Motorbooks. So this is a a coffee table book that. Gives you an overview of the M brand from beginning to end, and I mean, well, end and it's not done. Yeah, but I mean, no, it's like now. It doesn't. The, predict, the M
0: badge just doesn't mean anything anymore. It doesn't right?
1: predict the downfall of the M badge, but it does have a section on the almost M's, which is like the M Sport and whatnot, but uh, which is conveniently right near the section on the SUV M's, That's- but. What I mean to say is, it starts from before M existed, so when BMW Motorsport was getting going in the sixties and seventies, and then talks about the M one kind of launching that. You get the the M five, the E twenty eight M five, which is the first real M car that was that was built with a, a proper M badge, and then all the way up to the modern era. It the book is interesting in that it's it's very much an overview. Like there's good detail, but if you're the kind of person who already obsessively knows everything about M you're not going to find anything new here, but there is cool stuff if you're more casual about it. Like I didn't know this, but um, Bob Lutz, the guy who's been the CEO of, you know, Chrysler and Ford and GM or whatever, he was hired to be marketing manager at BMW in the seventies. And he is the guy who hired the person who ended up starting BMW M because he was convinced that BMW could take its marketing prowess. Sorry. It could take its, its, its on track prowess and then use that to market the cars. And they decided to, instead of... So Bob had come from... I call him Bob. Yeah. He had come from Ford, and he was working at Ford of Europe before that. And at Ford, uh, the racing stuff was all done in-house. It was underneath the same executive oversight as the rest of the company. But at BMW... The the guy who was starting was like, look, I don't want it to be like Ford. I want to do it in a way that's independent so I can make the right choices for our motorsport, whether on it's on the track or in the showroom. And they let him do that. So BMW M was a separate company. And that's in some ways why it was able to build some really interesting cars that maybe some of the other European automakers weren't able to do at the time.
0: Um, Tell me more about this because I know that... Um... First of all, to me, the, like, ultimate BMW M car, the one that just I love, I can't get enough of, is that 1M. It's a very special vehicle to me. I think it's like a supercar, essentially. But um, I don't know if, you know, the rest of the brand points to that car as sort of their their halo. It seems, in general, they think about the M3 as sort of the go-to BMW M vehicle. Whenever a new car comes out or an old one, it's measured against that, right?
1: Perhaps, but keep in mind that the M one engine ended up in the six series, the five and the five series and actually two right. generations of five series, uh, pretty much uh, with the M badge. So there is a lot of M one DNA in BMW M.
0: Cool. Uh, which, what is your favorite M? What is the one that you just can't, is it that V 10 one?
1: No, that's, that is a, that's a great motor, but it's, <laughs> it's not an attractive looking car. Uh, I, I've, I owned an E34 for a long time. So the E34 M5 is near and dear to my heart. Um, (laughs) Even though I I pretty much like most versions of the E34. The E39 M5, I think, is a really fantastic car that was way ahead of the rest. It was like a spaceship compared to what else was coming out in the late 90s, early 2000s from any brand. Uh, I think those two cars are pretty fantastic. I've also really, really liked the E46 M3. I've never had a chance to drive one. Um, I've had friends who've owned them and really love them. Uh, so those are kind of, I think, my trio of the my favorite M cars.
0: And now coming back to BMW M in the modern era, do you think it's... Like, reading through this book, do you think they've maintained a steady path or they've moved beyond what the M badge or the M brand originally stood for until um, then?
1: I think BMW has done a good job of constantly evolving what an M car means and not getting mm-hmm. caught. I mean, if you look at just look at the 5 series i mean they went from a 6 cylinder to a v8 to a v10 to a turbocharged v8 i mean those are dramatically different driving experiences and they're all right. under the same banner of the m5 so bmw never really same with the m3 you know like it, it went from 4 cylinder to 6 cylinder to turbo 6 and and they had a v8 in there too a high revving v8 out of out of nowhere they never really let themselves get pigeonholed and i think that's why it's hard to kind of say heritage when you're talking about those cars because for me the heritage of BMW M has always been about pushing limits and experimentation and and nowadays it's more about branding than anything else yeah but that pushes limits on its own
0: <laughs> and when it comes to the book how did you feel reading it did, was were there a lot of quotes stor- uh, or or sources that go beyond just sort of quoting right, there's, other there's,
1: there's interviews and there's you know they yep. talk to some of the people who engineered these cars and it's uh it, it, it is a. there's a lot of information here. It is a coffee table book. It is not a super in-depth book because there's a ton of cars to cover, right? It's 50 years of M cars, which is crazy to think about at this point. But um, it's worth picking up if you're a BMW fan. It's a good gift, I think, to give to someone who's a BMW fan. And if you're at all curious about the history of M, this is a great place to start. And that's, again, BMW M, 50 Years of the Ultimate Driving Machines by Tony Lewin, L-E-W-I-N. And it's published by Motorbooks.
0: Very cool. Um, I think that we should wrap up this week's episode. What do you think? I agree with you. Okay, so now we're steering the boat together. Um, I want to tell our listeners where they can find all of our um, past episodes. Just head on over to our website, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. While you're there, you'll see all of our old episodes. You'll find ways to subscribe to the podcast using a bunch of buttons on the top. You can also um, click through. There's a contact form there. Um, when you fill out that contact form, it lands in our inbox. That's what Sam did, which is very helpful. Um, in addition, if you want to get in touch with us the in, in any other way, we're also available. You can reach out to us on social media. You can find Ben on Instagram. He's at HuntingBenjamin. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Sammy underscore ha, H-A, like you're laughing. And if you just want to send us an email, you can do that. It's Benjamin at BenjaminHunting.com.
1: I want to Uh, say that when Sammy says we're steering the boat together, it really – it's more like Sammy's steering the boat and I'm on a water ski attached to the boat and I'm like behind the boat and Sammy's going wicked fast. And I've never water skied before and I'm just trying to hold on and I can't really see where he's going and I just have to trust him. But trust is hard to come by.
0: Have we not established that trust that trust yet, Ben?
1: I, You know, I thought so until I ended up on this one water ski behind a boat that I think you stole. Yeah, but it's wicked. Like, this is wicked fun, really. Um, ben, what are we talking about next week, speaking of water skis? Next week, I'm going to be talking about a totally different SUV, the 2022 Nissan Pathfinder, which is... Pretty much all new for this model year. Pretty much asterisk all new for this model year.
0: (laughs) That's all about water skiing, I think. The Pathfinder has never been a more water ski-friendly vehicle. Right? No comment. (laughs) And I'll be talking about the new Ford Maverick. So that'll be a fun episode full of new vehicles to talk about.
1: All right. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. Take care. Bye.